the Lenten season is upon us, and it's a time to pause and reflect. This year, there is much to reflect on. As we look back on 2020, there were many personal and professional sacrifices that were made to keep one another safe. We are more committed than ever to our mission of keeping all of the members of the Trident family both safe and healthy. Your perseverance, responsiveness, and dedication are helping to keep our beloved industry moving forward through these uncharted waters. We want to send our deepest appreciation to our many industry partners and valued customers around the world. Serving you truly inspires us all. We invite you to pull up a chair and listen in to Chapter 30, Sand Point. We hope it sheds some light on where that delicious seafood you're enjoying this season is coming from. Chapter 30, Sand Point, From Outpost to Fortress. Asked how he ended up in a corner office on the third floor of Trident headquarters, Trident President Paul Paget had to begin at the beginning. His appointment as company president in 2008 was not the work of a search committee or a corporate headhunter. Like other cornerstones in Trident's upper management, Paget had learned his trade in the trade. He learned about Trident operations by building them, running them, rebuilding them, and expanding them as the company grew from one shoreside facility on the island of Akatan to the giant presence it is today. Like so many others, Paget wasn't hired from the outside. He emerged from within. His early journey to the core didn't take him very long. The seafood business was tumultuous and intensely competitive in the early 80s when the Bering Sea king crab stock all but disappeared. Companies that had relied heavily on king crab were now struggling to survive however they could. And Paget was looking for more than a survivor. He was looking for a winner. By the time he'd graduated from college, he knew how to count and he knew how to keep score. I'd been to California State University in Chico and had a degree in business administration, Paget began. I started my career in the accounting department at Del Monte Corporation in San Francisco back in 1976. They were primarily a canner of fruits and vegetables, but they also had a seafood operation based in Astoria, Oregon. I had a good friend that went to work up there, and he told me it was a great place to be, so in 1977, I moved to Astoria. That was the Alaska Packers Association, which was part of Del Monte at the time. I was still with Alaska Packers in 1980 when I moved to their main office in Seattle. And by that time, I was splitting my duties between the accounting and the operational sides of the business. Subsequently, Alaska Packers was sold to Sea Alaska, Bob Rezoff's organization, and my duties were totally in the operational side of the business, dealing particularly with salmon and herring. The business wasn't doing all that well. So when Rezoff left Sea Alaska, I went to Pan Alaska which was like jumping from the frying pan into the fire, and that's when I first met Chuck. It was early July, 1983, Paget continued, when three processors, Trident, 
Sea Alaska, and Pan Alaska got into an impromptu joint operation involving salmon saners and tenders from all three companies. This was happening at the same time Bristol Bay was going on, so tenders and processing capacity were both in short supply. It was a limited 10-day operation where we all banded together to make sure we could handle the fishing boats on the grounds and process all the fish. The salmon were going to the Sea Alaska Processing Plant in Chignik and the Pan Alaska Processing Plant in Dutch Harbor, but it went wrong. Most of the vessels fishing the Unimac Pass area were Trident purse saners delivering to Trident tenders. They'd been fishing for sockeye salmon, but the waters also contained a high percentage of pollock, which were considered trash fish at the time. The salmon the boats did catch were immature pink and chum salmon, which yielded poor flesh recovery and little, if any, marketable roe. To make things worse, the fish had been pumped aboard the tenders with dry vacuum pumps designed primarily for herring. So the flesh was damaged, and the pollock came through in such bad shape that they began to decompose in the holds of the tenders. About 700,000 pounds had been delivered to processors, and half of the final load was so decomposed it had to be dumped. At the price that processors had paid for the fish, the math wasn't working out for Paget. Sea Alaska and Pan Alaska realized they'd taken a real beating on the deal just to take care of the Trident boats, Paget recalled. So later that summer, when Chuck brought the Tempest back from Bristol Bay, we had a meeting in Sandpoint. Chuck was aboard the Tempest, and I happened to be in Sandpoint at the time, so we met aboard his boat. I delivered the bad news to him that somebody was going to take a haircut, and it was either going to be his fishing boats or his tenders, one of the two. That didn't make him extremely happy at the time. That was my first run-in with Chuck, and it's an interesting story. I remember it very well, Paget continued, because I had a broken leg at the time. I was just able to walk without much help, but I had a cane. I don't recall how I managed to get aboard the Tempest, but I did. Chuck was in the galley eating breakfast at the time, and I was leaning up against the counter. While he was sitting at the table, I explained to him what happened. An adjustment was going to have to be made, either to the price his saners were going to get for their fish, or to the tenders who were tendering the fish into Dutch Harbor. At that point, Paget recalled, he got a little excited. He jumped up off the chair and started to lunge at me over the table. Leaning against the counter, Paget, with a broken leg, was in no shape to run for the galley door, and he knew he was vulnerable. Gripping the only weapon at hand, he prepared to hold his ground. I got ready and figured if he came at me, I was going to take my cane and whack him over the head with it, Paget recalled with a smile, but he didn't make me do it. Subsequently, we agreed that we'd spread the pain around a bit and that everybody would suffer in the process. Not long thereafter, Pan Alaska was suffering more than a little financial pain from a number of ventures that had gone sour and Paget realized the company was on the skids. With encouragement from his friend and co-worker, Tom Takioka, Paget was convinced it was time to make a move, or at least pay a visit to Unice, where the managers were interested in expanding their salmon operations. Tom and I were in the salmon end of the business at Pan Alaska, Paget explained. We already had contracts with saners and gillnetters, so I went over there with Tom and we met with a group of their top managers. Apparently, 
Their vision wasn't adding up for Paget either. I sat there and talked to them for three hours, and I walked out of that building thinking to myself, these guys haven't got a chance. They don't have a clue what they're doing. I can't work for these people. This is a disaster waiting to happen. So I drove back home, thought about it, and called Chuck. I said, hey Chuck, you know Panalaska is going out of business, and I've been over talking to Unice, and frankly, I can't work for these guys. Do you have anything that I can do for you? He said, come on in, let's talk about it. And it went from there. Paget had been working for Trident for a year when Chuck called up Bill Clapp, owner of Pelican Seafoods, and offered to buy his shore-based operation in Sandpoint. Located at the southwest tip of the Alaska Peninsula, Sandpoint had ready access to a wide variety of fish and shellfish from the Gulf of Alaska and the Bering Sea. At the time Trident purchased the facility, it was, as Steve Okerlund called it, a diamond in the rough. It would soon be Paul Paget's job to polish it up. What Paget and Bundrant understood from the beginning was that a single diamond can shine much more brilliantly when it's clustered with others. It was a natural fit for us, Paget recalled, because we were buying salmon and crab on the peninsula anyway and using the Neptune and the Tempest for processing. It made good sense to have a local shore plant, he added, because many of the saners making deliveries to the Trident floaters were already home-ported in Sandpoint. What the shore plant offered was the opportunity to expand on the Alaska Peninsula, supplement Trident's floating processors, and bridge the geographical gap between Seattle and Akatan. The difficulty Pelican Seafoods had with Sandpoint was that it wasn't big enough to stand on its own, Paget explained. It was big enough to handle a fleet of five sane boats and a dozen set netters, and that was it. It never achieved the mass necessary to survive. It was sitting out there by itself, just like the Pelican plant was sitting by itself in Southeast. It was the same situation as Wrangell Seafoods, which Trident acquired much later in 2009. It doesn't work as an independent operation, but it works as part of a bigger operation, Paget said. It was very clear to Paget that the diversity of Trident's product mix and scale of its operations in Alaska would be keys to its success. Bringing the right combination of mobile processing vessels together with strategically located shore-based facilities added strength to each of the component pieces that they couldn't generate on their own. If you look at our geography, Paget continued, where we sit in Alaska is really Trident's strength. Everything is interrelated and supports each other. Sandpoint, under Pelican, was just sitting out there by itself in the middle of nowhere, and it just didn't work. You couldn't get enough volume through a plant like that to make it pay. By the fall of 1980, the original Akatan plant was built and running, Paget recalled, but Sandpoint was Trident's first acquisition of an existing shoreside facility in Alaska. The location was ideal for establishing what would eventually become a network of Alaska shore-based processing plants that included Akatan, Sandpoint, St. Paul, Naknek, Chignik, Kodiak, Cordova, Petersburg, Wrangell, and Ketchikan. Focusing on the strategic importance of Sandpoint, Paget noted, it was good, because Akatan was 24 hours to the west by boat. We were already involved with Saners on the peninsula, 
We had floaters operating in the area. There was a Bairdye crab fishery that we had tapped into there with the Tempest prior to that. And there was the potential there to expand into other things that Pelican had never dreamed of, and neither had Peter Pan at the time. By that I mean expanding into the cod fishery and eventually into the pollock fishery. Chuck had already been heavily into codfish at the time, and he'd had some bad experiences. But he realized there was a tremendous cod resource out there, and that resource was also there in the Western Gulf. Pollock was away down the road, but everybody was aware of the Pollock resource as well. Fueled by the vision and economic support of Trident Management, what had once been a failing outpost on the remote Alaska Peninsula became a major multi-species producer for Trident. The name of the game was production, and both Bundrant and Pageant were counters. They kept score. They scored the game in pounds, and they played the game to win. Under Pelican, I think Sandpoint ran a total of maybe nine or 10 million pounds of fish, including salmon, crab, halibut, and a little bit of black cod, Paget recalled. Once we took over, we moved Sandpoint to the 50 to 60 million pound range, just by expanding salmon and cod. Then, as we moved into Pollock in the early 90s, we took Sandpoint into the 110 to 115 million pound range. We were pulling Pollock in not just from the Western Gulf, but also from the Bering Sea. Reaching into the Bering Sea to access more Pollock was an aggressive move that paid off handsomely when the Bering Sea Pollock fishery was rationalized and shares of the annual catch were awarded based on harvesting and processing history. Had Sandpoint quietly focused on its nearshore Pollock resources in the Gulf, the collective benefit to Trident would have been much smaller. We didn't realize it at the time, Paget said, but when we established a fleet of boats to pull fish in from the Bering Sea, that action is what earned Trident the biggest piece of inshore Pollock when rationalization came in. All of that history counted toward Bering Sea catch. Like I said, Paget repeated, we didn't know it at the time. We were just having fun bringing fish in from every place. In fact, when we couldn't find enough boats to haul fish all the way to Sand Point, we hired a couple of boats as tenders. Akatan itself was plugged at the time, but catcher boats would offload to our tenders at Akatan, and they'd bring the fish here to process it. And all of that went into earning the inshore pollock quota we have now. Interestingly, the flow of unprocessed pollock from the Bering Sea to Sand Point has reversed itself in recent years, and that sort of flexibility is another advantage of having a large, multifaceted operation. Sandpoint's modernized processing capabilities and the backup capacity available at Akatan have created a bright future for local fishermen too. Sandpoint has put together a fleet of boats that can overrun the plant when fishing is good, Paget explained. So, what we do is take our Bering Sea trawlers and run a rotation into Sandpoint. We put them at the end of the dock, pump them full of fish, and boom, they're off to Akatan. That's how we relieve the pressure of fish on Sandpoint. As Paget explained, guys who were pretty much crab fishermen and salmon saners started buying trawl gear for cod and then trawl gear for pollock. It was a very successful fleet to begin with. They'd made good money on salmon, but as the value of salmon fell off in the 80s and 90s, 
the ground fish provided them with the opportunity to keep their income up. Today, some of those boats make far more money doing cod and pollock than they do with salmon. It's a very successful fleet, and they grew right along with us. It didn't take Paul Paget long to understand that doing things in a small way was a liability in Alaska. With more than 40,000 miles of coastline, active volcanoes, hurricane-force winds, giant brown bears, and billions of pounds of fish and shellfish available to those who had the grit and savvy to catch and process them, Alaska was not a place where the small survived for very long. Bundrant knew that too, and it was no accident the two of them got together. In the wheelhouse of the Billiken, Bundrant was never satisfied to come in second. The whole idea of processing king crab aboard was to keep fishing while the rest of the fleet was running back and forth to town to offload, or worse, sitting idle on strike. There's a simple truth on the waterfront. You can't catch fish with your boat tied to the dock. The same holds true for a fish plant. You can't make money if it's not making noise. Bundrant was not dabbling in the fish business, and Paget was not interested in dabbling either. The business plan was simple. Invest, expand, and produce more. Early on, Paget recalled, the challenge was how to make more money in a place like Sandpoint. I'd worked for two companies, Sea Alaska and Pan Alaska, that were losers. When I came to work for Chuck, I think he had one year that wasn't too hot, but other than that, Chuck had been a success. That's because he looked at things differently and did things differently than his competition did. Whether you were talking crab, salmon, or herring, the three species we were involved in at that time. When Chuck went into Bristol Bay, he didn't go up with one floater and 30 gill netters. He went up there with the Tempest, the Billiken, the Bountiful, and finally the Neptune. He wanted to have the biggest fleet in Bristol Bay, and he wanted to pound fish through there. If he had too much fish, he'd figure it out at the time and deal with it. Apply that same philosophy to Sandpoint, Paget explained, and obviously a nine or 10 million pound plant doesn't work. So the first thing we did was invest more in salmon and get a mechanized salmon line up there. The plant went from 150,000 pounds a day to 350,000 pounds a day. That was the only thing we could do in the first three months. Ironically, there was a twinge of disappointment in Paget's voice. All he'd been able to do in the first three months was double the plant's output and then some. The next go-round was codfish, he continued. We realized there was a lot of codfish around Sandpoint. We needed some cod volume, and with the size of the fish we had around there, we approached a million pounds a day on codfish. Later, we did the same thing with Pollock, and that's what made Sandpoint go from a loser to a winner. Clearly, volume was the answer for Sandpoint and the other Trident operations, but generating volume required more than understanding the goal. How to get there required a lot more questions than answers. Are there enough fish to catch? Are there enough fishermen to catch them? Is there enough equipment to process the catch into a marketable form and maintain the quality? It's a big challenge when you think about investing in something that doesn't exist, Paget mused. How do I get this thing to the mass necessary to get volume? How do I get the boats to go along with it? In the case of Sandpoint, 
We had the boats and the guys had money. The fishermen saw that we were willing to spend money and they said, okay, we know there's Pollock out there, and they invested too. All of this took place within the span of five to eight years. Akatan was much the same thing, Paget noted. To take Akatan from what it was when it was built to what it is today required a massive amount of capital, upwards of $200 million in today's dollars, spent over the course of 30 years. Chuck could see it, and he was willing to say, let's do it. Let's go from six bottom machines to 10, then 12, then 15. We've got this little bunkhouse here. Let's build another one. Then let's build another one and another one. We've got these Botter 99s on the cod line that can do about 300,000 round pounds a day into fillets. How about we put in three Botter 200s and a 185 and we'll take it to 700,000 pounds. I do remember that we had to work to convince Chuck to get back into the cod business after his bad experience with salt cod, Padgett recalled. But once he embraced the idea, we got back into cod in a big way. Now we are by far the biggest cod buyer in Alaska. It pales in comparison to Pollock volume, but we did about 110 million pounds of cod last year. Ask Chuck Bundrant what makes Trident the company it is, and you will get the same answer every time. The people, Bundrant says, it's the people. Good people create winning teams, and winning teams attract good people. And when the goal is production, good people work hard. Paget was no exception. When we took over the plant in 86, Paget recalled, I ran Sandpoint as well as everything else we did on the peninsula. I would still go up and help with the Togiak herring, and there were occasions when I would go to Akatan for three or four weeks to replace Clyde Lovett, who was out there at the time. When we first got Sandpoint, I would spend seven to eight months of the year out there. Then I began splitting my time with Akatan, and by then I was probably spending about six months a year in Alaska, and that lasted into the 90s. As Paget understood well, Bundrant's strength was his ability to attract the right people, listen to them, and invest in their ideas. Paget also understood that hiring the right people was difficult, and that identifying the right talent within Trident was central to growth. Chuck was willing to go with the suggestions that people had, and to commit the capital to make those things work, Paget said. But there were real challenges to getting those plants operating and getting the people in there to actually run that type of volume. There aren't many people in the industry that can do that. As we went along, we began building up a group of competent people in Sandpoint. The guys we'd inherited when we acquired the company were nice guys, but they didn't do things the way we wanted to do them, so there was turnover. And eventually, we got some key people sticking with their positions in production and engineering. Chris Arnhem was one of the first, and he took over Sandpoint from me and ran it successfully for a number of years. We did the same thing in Akatan. When we added the Pollock plant, it became a completely different operation than any of the existing people were prepared to handle. So there were key people who developed over time in Akatan too. A lot of guys, like Dave Hamilton, started out in Akatan. We haven't had him doing much there in the past 10 years. He's been involved in crab and salmon operations, but because of his experience in Akatan, he'd become a very well-rounded production guy, probably one of the best you could find in the business. Chris Arnhem has never spent any time in Akatan, but if you take a look at those two guys now, 
You really can't find people in the industry with that kind of experience. They just grew along with Trident as Trident grew. Growing with the company is not uncommon at Trident. Anybody who has visited the Akatan plant in the last decade has been welcomed by plant manager Dave Abassian. He coordinates vessel deliveries from his corner office on the second floor and keeps one eye on more than a dozen video screens monitoring every stage of plant operations. From fish flowing into the front end to finished fillet blocks, surimi, fish meal, and oil heading into storage. He's not simply in charge of production. He's the mayor of the Akatan facility, a small town of 1,200 workers from all over the globe, and he's ultimately responsible for everything that happens at Trident's outpost in the Aleutians. The plant generates its own power, purifies its own water, tends to its own fires, injuries, and illness, and feeds, houses, trains, and polices its own employees, from Muslims who lay prayer rugs in the break rooms to Christians who attend services at the Safe Harbor Church built by Trident founders. Akatan is the largest fish processing plant in North America, and it can process more than 3 million pounds of Alaska Pollock each day. How did Abbasian come to run it? Dave Abbasian is another great story, Paget recalled. He was hired as a helper in the mess hall, and eventually he moved up to cook. Then he approached me one day and said, I don't mind what I'm doing here, and I do a good job, I think, but I'd like to get into production. So I said, let's give it a go. Dave spent the first six months with Dave Hamilton, doing various processing jobs around the plant and learning each of these jobs. Then we made him a lead guy and gave him a group of people. He worked case up and out on the dock and other places, leading small groups of 12 to 20 people. Then he became a shift supervisor, leading 120 to 150 people per shift. Eventually, he moved on up to the point that he was my number two guy and eventually the number one guy at Akatan, Paget said. There are other people there who have emerged over time. He recalled running through a long list in his mind and knowing that he couldn't mention all of them in this interview. Henry Coe and Nilo Mandarang are guys who came up as processors and then moved up the ranks to shift supervisors. Mihai Matea actually came pretty early in my tenure at Akatan. He was a refugee from Romania, Paget remembered. He didn't know exactly what he was going to be doing up there, but he grew into being a Surimi man, and he has actually contributed incredibly to us, not just in Akatan, but in Sandpoint, Kodiak, and now Cordova, where we have a Surimi line running salmon. He's a very key person. He's a technical guy, but he's also a manager of people. There's a good-sized group of people who work for him, and he's tough, so a few of them fell out along the way. But now he's got a core of people who really like working for him and are very competent at what they do. Mihai is the guy that led the move to take the Surimi operation from Nisui, Paget explained. Nisui was in there running our Surimi operation. We wanted to do it ourselves. And it was Mihai who said, let me do it. And he studied it, took it over, and it was successful right off the bat. I remember sitting in the office room downstairs and telling Nisui we were going to run our own Surimi operation. They laughed at us and said, you can't do that, you'll never make it work, but we did. With the help of Mihai Matea and Chris Riley, not only did Trident figure out how to produce its own Surimi in Akatan, but under Bundrant's direction, the company chose a path that was previously not taken by other successful Surimi producers. 
They chose to fillet all of their pollock first, and instead of directing all of the fish flesh to surimi, they high-graded the best fillets for IQF pollock and fish blocks, and sent what couldn't be made into blocks to the surimi operation. This was completely outside the design that Trident purchased from Nippon Suisan, the Japanese surimi experts. But the divergence from the norm and the diversity of production it permitted proved critical to Akatan's ultimate success. What was conceived by the Japanese as a surimi plant, Paget explained, is today a fillet plant, with surimi serving basically as a byproduct of the operation. As a result of the focus on product recovery and product diversity, the recovery went from below 20% on frozen product to 40%. So product recovery has more than doubled, and the ability to maximize production of IQF product or deep skin fillet blocks has come along with it. A point that's often overlooked by those considering the sustainability of the Alaska pollock industry is the enormous impact that investments in product recovery can have on the profile of a fishery. It's widely accepted that the majority of the world's fisheries are fully exploited. However, the current definition of exploitation considers only whether the fish are harvested, not what is done with the fish after they've been harvested. As Paget noted, the innovative changes made to the processing line at Akatan more than doubled the frozen product recovery from each pollock delivered. Had all pollock processors been so successful, the net effect on food production would have been the same as doubling the amount of pollock in the Bering Sea. Having options was the key, and choosing the right options was what opened the door for Trident's broader success at Akatan. After rationalization, with the passage of the American Fisheries Act, the pollock fishery moved from a race for fish, which rewarded those who could catch and process fish the fastest, to a quota-based cooperative fishery that allowed the industry to invest in things other than brute fishing power and harvesting capacity. As a result, investment shifted toward fishing smarter and matching the flow of raw material to a reconfigured fish plant that could maximize product recovery, increase product diversity, and elevate product value. In the early days before rationalization, Paget recalled, everything was based largely on increasing volume. Even before we knew we were in a race for fish, we were increasing volume at the expense of recovery or at the expense of labor. Remember that Akatan began as a plant running one million pounds of pollock per day. Today, if we've really got to do it, we can push it past three million to around 3.2 million pounds. When that plant was built, a lot of the original investment was for running additional capacity. But when rationalization came in, the entire emphasis went to getting more out of the fish we already had. We didn't need to run more than three million pounds per day. The goal was to find what the optimum number was, even if it was two and a half million. The focus became how we take that two and a half million and get the maximum recovery and the highest value product out of it, whatever that happens to be in any given season. And it required tremendous investment to do that. Speaking of the advantages that a shore plant brings to the production side of the business, Paget noted, as time has gone on, from the point of rationalization, there has been non-stop installation of new equipment to recover more and more product, along with the additional equipment to give you better product diversity and additional equipment and mechanization 
to eliminate labor. With a shore plant, you can always knock out a wall if you have to and go 100 feet in some direction, or you can put a mezzanine deck in. With a plant, you have a lot more options to expand, and that's been the story of Akutan. It's not the same with a vessel. On boats, you're always going to be somewhat limited. On our boats, we've done a pretty good job of jamming equipment into them, but in the end, there's a limit to what we can do. We can look at sponsoning, and we can look at lengthening or adding a deck to the vessel, but the capital cost is prohibitive, and it's questionable whether you'll get the payback. The downside of a shore plant is that it can't follow large concentrations of fish like a factory vessel can. But the Bering Sea quota is divided between shore-based and at-sea processors. Akatan's direct competition is with other shore-based plants located in Dutch Harbor, and Paget notes that Trident's operational philosophy is somewhat different. The primary reason is that Trident owns a good many of its own catcher vessels and has strong relationships with the others. While the Dutch Harbor fleet is often satisfied to run long distances for small, ceremi-grade Pollock, the Trident fleet operates on a shorter leash. Sometimes in the summer bee season, fish concentrations are sparse within 250 miles of the plant, Paget admitted. But with our boats, our approach is to fish the best fish that we can for the plant. In Dutch Harbor, with no boat control, the guys run 400 miles away, load up on little fish, and a good percentage of what comes back to Dutch Harbor may wind up going into fish meal, and certainly, it's not the best type of fish for fillets or recovery of other high-valued products. We know the highest-value product is blocks, Paget said, so let's produce blocks. Let's sell these blocks or use the blocks internally in places like Anacortes. With that sort of priority, the surimi becomes a byproduct made from a reject fillet or the nape cut or the throat cut or the belly flap, which can't go into the fillet blocks. When Akatan tooled up to produce fillets and fillet blocks, it generated a lot of them in a hurry. As Paget noted, the goal was production. But who is going to sell all this product? Chuck could see the sales end far better than I could, Paget admitted. He said, don't worry about the sales. You guys worry about how much fish you can get your arms around and run through these plants. Once again, Trident's success was in the hands of its people and Bundrant brought good people to the task. If you look at Akatan again, Paget said, having Nasui not only produce the surimi, but also sell the surimi for us was a mistake. It was a necessity at the time, but to perpetuate it would have been a huge mistake. So we fumbled around a little bit. Ken Tamishi came on board and he helped out, but ultimately Chuck went out and got the guy who we really needed, Mr. Suzuki. He took him away from Tokai Denpun. So here was a case where Chuck made the commitment to get the people he needed to sell the product out of Akatan as well. Here's another example. One day I looked around and saw we had 20 million pounds of unsold Pollock blocks. Torin Hallium was the natural answer to that. And again, Chuck made the commitment to hire the right person. As a result, we became a very large supplier of Pollock blocks to Europe. But I wasn't worried about that, Paget said with a smile. I was producing fish. We 
hope that you enjoyed chapter 30. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be the first to know when our next episode is released on Wednesday, March 3rd. We appreciate you joining us, and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deck load of dreams.